Hello and welcome to episode number 42 of Making Media Now, the Filmmakers Collaborative Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. Joining me on this episode is composer and musician Tom Phillips. Tom's credits include well over 400 films for national broadcast networks such as PBS, ABC, CBS, National Geographic Channel, Discovery Channel, A&E, and HBO. He's amassed an impressive list of industry awards. His scores are regularly heard on national broadcast television, including the Antiques Roadshow theme and programs for American Experience and NOVA. His resume includes four national Emmy winners, as well as many other Emmy-nominated films, including Freedom Riders, which won three national primetime Emmys. He scored many independent films, which have won film festival awards, including multiple Sundance Film Festival winners, such as The Murder of Emmett Till. Among his most recent work is his score for the documentary Attica, which will open this year's Toronto Film Festival on September 9th and be featured on Showtime later in the month. Here's a brief medley of some of Tom's recent work. Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers from across the creative spectrum. From providing fiscal sponsorship to presenting an array of informative and educational programs, Filmmakers Collaborative supports creatives at every step in their journey. To learn more, visit filmmakerscollab.org. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please share it with others, leave a review, and subscribe. And now on to my conversation with Tom Phillips. Hello, Tom Phillips, and welcome to Making Media Now. Hi, Michael. Thank you for inviting me. It's good to speak with you. Tom is a composer 
and he has scored at last count. And when I say at last count, I got this from your uh, filmmakers collaborative podcast. P.S. Tom is also a uh, uh, a very proud member of filmmakers collaborative and a very valued member of filmmakers collaborative. But through your um, profile on filmmakers collaborative, I read that you have scored more than 500 films, and I'm betting that number has increased since. Well, it's it's, I mean, it's it's roughly 500. I don't know if it's exactly 500. Yeah. It could be could be 490. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Could be five ten. Yeah, we're in the neighborhood, but it's safe to say that's a lot of movies. It is. It's a lot of films, but I've been doing it a long time. You've been doing it a long time. I, I and, hate to say. And, and so I'm interested um, in your background as a musician. Uh, when did music first come into your life? Uh, and and when when you first sort of caught the music bug? What were your musical ambitions? Well, I first started taking piano lessons when I was four. Wow. And where where was this? Where'd you grow up? I grew up in New York, okay. on Long Island. All right. And, uh, you know, so I've been playing since I was four. So the big question is, oh, well, why aren't you better? <laughs> i playing all that time. Um, but it was a classical uh, piano teacher who um, stressed theory. And uh, he had uh, played with the Paul Whiteman Orchestra in New York. Okay. And uh, he actually played cello with them. When I would bring him things to learn, you know, other than classical music, he would literally just tear it up. <laughs> you know, I remember bringing him a Beatles song and he, he tore it up. <laughs> he tore it up. Um, his idea of jazz was Gershwin. Okay. Which, you know, Gershwin is jazz, but, you know, uh, he was really founded in, in the classics, Bach, Beethoven, Mozart. Uh, so that's that's really my my background in terms of music. He really stressed that. And then when I got to college, I was an English major, intending to be pre-law. Were you continuing with your piano playing the whole time? Well, I was playing in rock bands when I was in, okay. uh, in college, and it was like an original music band because I was writing the songs for the band. Cool. Uh, always playing keyboard. Always playing keyboard. And actually, I started writing music when I was like five years old. Did you? I really? just would sit sit down on the piano and just just kind of. Just let the fingers do what they wanted to do. Yeah. And so what do you so what's happening then? Is it is it your 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 brain is just finding you're finding you've got the ability to put together a harmony? Can can you can you kind of get granular with it? Uh, it's just that you just play what you hear or as you play it, you hear it. I don't necessarily play. I don't hear it before I play it. I, I kind of hear it as I play it. And at this, how old were you when you uh, learned to read music? Oh, I was right away. I was four. Wow. They start, they, you know, I mean, if you're going to play classical music at four years old. Yeah. I mean, at the time, four years old, I was playing Peter and the Wolf, which is not exactly a, uh, a Bach piece, but, but, you know, you have to read the notes. Yes, exactly. So this, this takes you into the world of uh, rock and roll having your own, having your own band. And then you're, you're in college and continuing to play. Yeah. And then I dropped out of college early because I uh, met my wife while I was in college and she played guitar and we decided to go on the road with a rock and roll band. And so I just left college. My parents love that. When was <laughs> this? When, wh what historical epic are we talking about? Is this the sixties? Uh, early seventies. Early seventies. Okay. When I left college and we traveled all around the South and the Midwest. As a duo. Well, no, with, with large bands. With, oh, you uh, did? Okay. With six, seven, eight piece bands. And I had to arrange all the parts for those bands. 
um, you know, write out the parts for those people. What kind of music were you performing? Well, it was contemporary music and it was also um, contemporary music based in kind of a showy aspects because uh, we were playing hotels. Okay. And, and they expected like, if you played five sets, they expected one set to be like a, a show. It's a quote unquote show, you know, okay. you know, quasi Las Vegas type of thing. So I had to write those two. So while everybody else, when we were on the road, like in, like in gorgeous weather, like in the South, I was in the club with earphones on writing out charts. The romantic life of a musician. Right. It's not exactly what people think it is. <laughs> All glamour. So how, how long did that, how long did that band stay together? Well, we, we had different bands and we, we kind of decided to move back to Massachusetts at the end of 77. We were here for the blizzard of 78, thankfully. Yeah, and you don't want um, to be caught out on the road during that type of a blizzard. And so I went around to studios and found work as a session player playing keyboards and then arranging parts for the, the acts that they had, you know, come into the studios to record. Were, were was, these Boston area studios? Yeah. yeah. Okay, this, was so. also, this was also like the height of the disco area okay. where people used a lot of strings and horns. And so they needed somebody who could arrange for those instruments. Okay. So I wrote out the string parts and the horn parts, arranged them, you know, figured out what they should be. And uh, this is also the height of kind of like the cocaine era, too. So while, <laughs> while the engineer and producer are kind of snorting cocaine, I'm just kind of watching to see how you run a session. And I would ultimately run the sessions. Kind of <laughs> yeah, because they were incapacitated. Because they were right. They were somewhat incapacitated. And so and then I started to get my own projects uh, and I produced them. And I was at a studio in Newton mixing something. And the owner of the studio walked in and he said, can you write for television? And of course, what, what, what should my answer have been? No, I've never done that. But no, it wasn't that. It was, of course I can. Of course you can. Yes. Uh, so I wrote for the first things I did were for WCVB Channel 5, which at the time had a pretty large local production facility. Right. And uh, I remember Paula Absol was one of the people there and she um, was in charge of a great deal of, that, of those productions. This is per her pre-Nova career. Pre-Nova. We probably did maybe, you know, 20 films there. Um, I worked with the owner of the studio who got the contracts and then he got a contract. Uh, I don't know if you remember a film called Summer Solstice. Vaguely with, familiar. With Henry Fonda and Myrna Loy. Okay. It was an ABC movie of the week. Channel yep. 5 produced it, and they shot it on Cape Cod. The guy that I worked with, he got the contract to write the music for that. So I scored that whole film. Although, because he got the contract, he took the music credit. Oh, interesting. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, I was, of course, young and uh, inexperienced and naive. So it's music. He, who directed that film? I forgot who directed it, but the editor was Ralph Rosenblum, who was Woody Allen's editor. Oh, wow. Yeah. He did Annie Hall and Take the Money and Run and all those yep. wonderful films, yep. Bananas. Yep. Um, so he came up to Massachusetts and cut the film. And Catherine Dietz was, uh, her, her legs made the movie. <laughs> did they really? Yeah, she was working as a filmmaker's collaborative and, trivia. Yeah, she was working as as she was working as a production assistant, and they needed for the last scene to have Myrna Loy's legs be in the shot. Yeah, so but she I was literally Loy, a stand-in. Yes, but I guess Myrna Loy wasn't up to it, so, or, or down to it, you know. So uh, you know, Henry Fonda is sitting next to Catherine legs you know <laughs> i love it That's we didn't find this out till many years later though okay at least i didn't find this out yeah are her legs credited 
Uh, I don't think so. Yeah, didn't get her. Did she didn't get her SAG card? No, well, you know she should get royalties for the lakes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, did that experience? Did that experience uh, make you uh, more enthusiastic about uh, scoring for films? I was always enthusiastic, but it made my parents more enthusiastic. Okay, because it felt like a real job. Well, they said, hey, you know, maybe he's going to work out, you know, <laughs> the fact that he left college, you know, for this. <laughs> so uh, and then then I scored films uh, with this other fellow who owned the studio yep. and then gradually broke away from him and went out on my own. So musicians, artists in general, and this is a generalization, you know, they typically have a certain mindset, uh, a certain personality type. You don't typically consider musicians being nine to five types that or or maybe schedule driven types. Do you is, as a musician, do you think there's a particular personality type that works better as a uh, composer of music for film and television? Well, you know, strangely enough, I, I don't really classify myself as a musician. I mean, I'm a good musician, but I don't I'm a composer and I'm Tell me the difference. I don't really worry about how difficult something is to play because actually I'm playing into a computer. Yep. I just have to, I just have to hear what I want it to sound like. So I just play. And if it doesn't quite sound, if I don't have the chops to actually make it sound like I want it to sound, I just take my mouse and move everything around or, or you know, keep overdubbing till it sounds correct. Um, it's, you know, for me, it's all about the ears and I am a obsessive compulsive. So which is excellent for a film composer to be. Yeah. Right. Um, so I'll just keep working at something and working on something until I feel that it's right. On the other hand, I'm also very good at recognizing when I'm pounding a square peg through a round hole. So if I'm watching a film and the credits come up and it, and it says music by Tom Phillips, can I make the assumption that you both wrote that music music and you're playing it? I'm playing it unless there are live instruments that are credited. Okay. Um, for example, I, I work a lot for American Experience, and live instruments are used quite often in those scores. So if it was a violin or a cello or a flute or an oboe, clarinet, you know, I mean, I'll credit those. So, no, I, I don't play oboe or, or, or cello. But, you, but, but you, wrote, you wrote the music that they're playing. I wrote playing. the music, right. Okay. And I act, actually, uh, because of COVID, um, I was not able to record for one of the films I did, which needed live instrumentation, actually for several of them, I had to uh, find a cello sample library that was outstanding, that was as good as a live cellist or as good as can possibly be next sure. to a live cellist. Who makes the decision around we want to have, you know, live music as opposed to, uh, you know, something that uh, that already exists or something that, you know, is uh, created digitally? Well, there Two, two things. One is the budget because musicians okay. cost money. And then for me to record them and write out their parts. And then it's like recording narration. After you finish recording narration, you have to go through a thousand takes, figure out what is the best take. Right. Is, and the same things with recording instrument. You take as many takes as you think you need, and then you have to pick through them. So it's partially budget. Yep. And the other thing is that if you're doing a film score for like American experience, makes completely no sense to have a sampled instrument play a violin part when it has to be, you know, in order for it to sound good, it really has to be a real violin. It's, you know, samples can only do so much. Sure. And particularly with something like American experience, are you typically trying to get the music to sound 
like it fits within the time period the film is set in? Or are you thinking of the music as as more of, you know, providing an overall context for the storytelling experience itself? The producers and I discussed that ahead of time. And certain producers have a real aversion to period music and just want it to be what they consider, you know, like dramatic film score. Um, And others want period music. And then there's also what I call the difference between internal music and observational music. So So tell me the difference between the two. Well, internal music is like it's coming from the place, kind of it's in the picture. Mm -hmm. Observational is we are standing back and we are watching and the music is kind of helping define the scene to us. But it's standing back from the scene. We're observing it and the music is kind of helping us do that. How do you at what point in the process are you making? Are you in conjunction with the director or the producer making those decisions? Is this uh, during production, pre-production? Is it all post-production? Oh, no. It's uh, as soon as I get a cut, uh, which sometimes is just an assembly cut, Mm -hmm. sometimes a rough cut. Um, and we'll talk about, we'll, we'll spot the film, we'll talk in, in generalities about what the music should do. Uh, like, for example, the film on Marian Anderson that I scored for American Experience, the producer wanted the music to be class, all classical in nature for the most part. Okay. And to seamlessly be able to blend in with her recordings, blend in and out. So you, it doesn't sound like something's just popping in yep. and leaving. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, we discussed that ahead of time. So I I kind of knew when I'm writing the score, what, what direction to go in. And also it's Marian Anderson. You know, why would you put something contemporary behind her? Right. Right. Uh, Is there any such thing as a typical turnaround? Uh, For instance, you know, if, if you've got a 60 minute um, American experience film, um, how much time is being built (laughs) in to allow you to compose a score for that? Uh, never enough, <laughs> but, uh, the, the amount of time available is the amount of time it takes to do it. Yeah. <laughs> How's that for an answer? Sure. There you go. Um, that, that, that's a man who's worked in production for years. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and sometimes there's so many things changing all the time right. in the film. I, I mean, an example is Marian Anderson was supposed to be a one hour film, which in PBS terms is like 52 minutes. Well, the uh, powers that be to merit experience love the rub the cut so much, love the I guess the rough cut or the fine rough cut so much. They decided to make it ninety minutes instead. Okay, but they didn't change the schedule. <laughs> and then they decided, well, let's make it a hundred minutes. <laughs> Here you go. And the, okay, now here's another case. Uh, so I just finished the Attica film uh, on the 1971 riot with Stanley Nelson. And he contracted me to do a 90 minute film. Well, the first cup that I got from him was two hours long. So I, the schedule's the same. So I said, well, I said, well, how can you do that? You know, this is you. He said, well, I can do it. <laughs> so is it going to air as two hours? Yes, it'll air. It's done. It's, it's, it's two hours long. <laughs> So, yeah, the Attica film, uh, you, you and I were trying to schedule this conversation for a while and you were super busy. You were working for American Experience on the a film about Attica. As no, actually, that's for, that's for Showtime. Oh, that's Showtime. That is Showtime. Oh, OK. Terrific. Which when is, will that is, air? Uh, well, there again, they were supposed to air it in September, but now it got accepted into the Toronto Film Festival. So I, st- I asked Stanley, if, is this going to air in September? And he says, well, it's Showtime. They can air it whenever they want. Right, right. Well, congratulations. I mean, show on the, that. you know, Showtime is not PBS. 
Yeah. You know, PBS has like dates, you know, and then if you don't get the, the film done by a certain date, everybody gets penalized. You know, there are fees that, but this is my first experience with Showtime and basically they do whatever they want. So mm. it, I would think it should air in September because that's when the, the prison takeover took over, uh, took happen was in September of 1971. Then it'll be okay. the 50th anniversary. Right. That being said, Stanley doesn't know because it's got accepted to Toronto. And I think Showtime wants it to have exposure there first. So that, mm-hmm. you know, if it gets all these awards, you know, then they can advertise that as they promote the film. And then the Frederick, Frederick Douglass film and the Harriet Tubman films, who are those for? Well, those are from American, uh, Maryland Public Television, which is PBS. Mm-hmm. Uh, was both those people, Tubman and Douglas, came from Maryland. Okay. Uh, so that they're they're the, are the presenting station, and Stanley again is the producer of both those films. When a producer or director reaches out to you uh, to seek your involvement in a film, and how far in the process, I know that you said, you know, you're, you're looking at an assembly or a very, very rough cut, but even when someone picks up the phone and says to you, Tom, I'm making a movie about Attica. Is your brain already hearing music around, you know, what would work in a movie about Attica? Well, it was because Stanley sent me a Spotify list of things that he had found and they were all funk. Okay. A hundred, a hundred percent funk. So I listened to like 50 funk tunes uh, from like that era. Yeah. And then uh, before I got anything from the film, I just started writing funk things just for the hell of it, just to okay. kind of get my, my funk chops together. Cause <laughs> I don't write funk every day. Get your funk on. Uh, and then it turns out he didn't want any funk, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> nothing, nothing. And also Stanley, his, he's very different than a lot of producers and he likes music to be, as he calls it, like the wind at your back. And what does that mean? That means if it weren't there, you'd notice there's something missing. Okay. But if you notice it, it's not like the wind at your back. So, so just enough, but not too much. Right. To be very, to have the right kind of, it's a very fine line. Yeah. To to have the right degree of, of dramatic emotion without crossing that line so that you're telling the viewer what they should be thinking. Mm-hmm. He wants the film to do all the speaking and the music just to gently support it. I've noticed this, I, I wouldn't go so far as to call it a trend, but I've, I've noticed in more than a handful of documentaries that I've watched over the past year or so, this tendency to could take a, uh, a documentary about an event that took place, say, early in the 20th century, but a decision was made to put a very modern sounding score behind it. And sometimes it's, it really works, I think, because the theme that that is being covered in the documentary is as relevant contemporaneously as it was then. And sometimes it feels like this weird juxtaposition, but I'm curious, have you, have you observed that? Do you have any thoughts about that? Oh, sure. I mean, I've, I've written scores like that. It's, it's fine. As, as, as long as the music doesn't get in the way, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's something that I think of, I, I, I call it creativity for the sake of being creative. Yeah. Okay. And, and that's, you know, a lot of people, especially early on in their career, yep. that's what they try to do. They, they yep. try to use every trick in the book that they can figure out. Oh, I can use that here. Mm-hmm. And really, you know, what I've learned over a course of time is that the voice in the film, you know, the speaking, that's an instrument and you have to work with that instrument and whatever I write, it, it has to flow well 
So, and so it, it really, sometimes it doesn't matter whether it's period music or contemporary music, as long as the music doesn't jolt you and make you think, what's, what's this doing here? Mm-hmm. Do you begin writing always on the keyboard? Yes. Okay. Because uh, I'm a piano player. Yep. So that, that's sort of the spine of everything. It is. And then I have like uh, so many sounds <laughs> that, you know, uh, I'll start writing and then I'll say, okay, I, let me grab a cello or let me grab an oboe. Yeah. Or if it's more contemporary based, you know, let me, let me try this sound, which is just like a synthetic sound to see how this works. As you were uh, building your career uh, as a composer for film, um, were there other film composers that who, whose work you admired, whose work? Oh, yeah. That, yeah what names come to mind? Uh, Bernard Herrmann. Uh-huh. Sure. The Good and the Bad, the Ugly, uh, Ennio Morricone. Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, one of my favorites. Uh, yeah guy who worked on um i'm just drawing a blank here uh oh, don't for, don't forsake me oh my darling high noon that was um forgot the name of the guy i'd have to look it up but his music was really great yeah and then there's the whole uh the, the whole newman family oh yeah i mean they're very good too uh, i mean alfred I, newman I, thomas newman randy I do, newman <laughs> i do listen to them but as far as like really being influenced i'm not influenced by them Right. But sure. I really was influenced by Bernard Herrmann. I, I, I'm sure you've seen Studios and Kane. Yes. Yeah. The opening of that with the low woodwinds yeah. as the camera is panning up to the castle. Uh, it's fabulous. And, and how, how Herrmann uses low woodwinds. When you watch movies these days, uh, how you have to be aware of, of what the composer is doing. And is, is anything, are there any, are you observing any trends uh, is there anything you particularly like that's being done or dislike what's being done? Well, I have to say that because of um, cable and some of these programs that are produced, they have a fear of space, you know, so it's wall to wall music. Oh, yes. OK, sure. And they well, you know, I have a music library, too. So mm-hmm. they use but they use music libraries and just pepper the thing with music all the way through. There's there's no space. There's no breathing room. Right. So I, I find that very objectionable. I, I, I mean, I've told plenty of filmmakers who have asked me or that I'm having a conversation about music. Music has as much power en- uh, leaving as it does entering. Sure. Yeah. So you mentioned your music library. And so your your business uh, is OBT, Off the Beaten Tracks, T-R-A-X. Right. Um, so you make your music library available to filmmakers who haven't necessarily contracted you to compose for their film, correct? They right. can avail right. themselves of your library. Tell me how that relationship works. Well, first of all, I provided at what I consider to be a very affordable cost-effective rate. So, mm-hmm. I mean, for $500, they can get a subscription for the entire year and with unlimited use. You know, however, if they're broadcast, non-broadcast, they don't have to do paperwork unless it's for broadcast. So it's and that's royalty-free? Well, it's royalty-free with the exception if it's for broadcast. Okay. And then they have to fill out, or I help them fill out paperwork because they have you have to file, you have to show that you have the rights to use the music right. for broadcast. So I yep. provide that. And so the they don't pay anything, but the presenting station has an affiliation with either ASCAP or BMI. So that's how that works. But it's, it's really cost effective. And I try to, uh, and very often filmmakers that I'm working with go to my library to temp score the film before I can start working on it. And sometimes they find pieces that work really well and I can take those pieces and fit them better or else they find pieces that, 
don't work really well, which is equally as valuable as finding a piece that works well. Because if you know what you don't like, it helps you figure out what you do like. In addition to composing music for films and TV, um, have you done much in the space of multimedia or like, you know, museum work? Oh, yeah. Um, a lot of museum work. Um, I, I did plenty of projects for the American Museum of Modern, uh, Modern American Museum of History in okay. New York. We did something called uh, Bioluminescence. Bioluminescence. It was called Creatures of Light. Okay. And it was about all these things uh, that fly through the air and underwater that, you know, do their own thing, you know, produce light. And it was a great project. They had eight rooms, uh, which were all connected and only as a curtain hanging between them. So the music score I had to write was for each room, which one of them dealt with uh, fireflies, one of them dealt with things that are underwater. And the producers of this wanted the music to be like Vivaldi or Sanson, you know, very classical and, and then other things to be very electronic. If I wasn't doing this correctly, you'd be in one room and music was playing and the music in the other room, which is only separated by a curtain, would suddenly rise in volume. You'd hear that instead. So I had to construct the music so that at a certain point in time, the music went up in all eight rooms. Wow. And they went back down. And these pieces were seven minutes long. Yeah. They were seven minute longs each. So there was a massive project, but it was fabulous. I, I went down to see the show and, and of course it's New York. I mean, they, they did a great job of it. It's, it's fabulous. And then, and then it traveled around the country. And I've also worked for the museum of science quite a bit here in Boston. Plus, you were a busy uh, man, Tom. Plus one of the companies I work for, they're called Monadnock Media. They're out in Hadley, Mass. Okay. They mostly do museum shows. Okay. Yeah, I've heard so, of them. So we did the Truman Museum in Independence, Missouri. I finished that last year. And they did the Choctaw Indian Museum, which is actually in Mississippi, because that's where the Choctaw originally came from. So it's, you know, yes, a lot of museum work. What about video game work? Are you, is any of that coming your way? I've never done that. My partner in the library yep. has done video game work. I, I have not. Tom Martin? Yeah. Yep. I don't, I mean, I could probably do it, but mm-hmm. it's, it's, not, it's nothing I've, nobody's ever presented to me. Would you like to score a video game? And there again, I've never played a video game, so I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> Other than way back in the seventies, what was that? Pong? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. I didn't think, I don't think there was a very vibrant score to Pong <laughs> or, or Donkey Kong, whatever it was back then, you know, a little yeah. ping pong ball. that kind yeah. of. If you had free reign over the type of projects that, that you were going to be creating music for, you know, from here on out, would it be a particular genre of filmmaking or, you know, would it be TV versus feature films or what would, what would be on your wish list? Well, I like the scores on the films I'm working on. Um, mm-hmm. They're all different. They're all interesting. And what I really like about this profession is I may have a smattering of knowledge about all these things, but in very many cases, not an in-depth knowledge. Sure. By the time I'm finished scoring them, I have an in-depth knowledge of, of the topic. Yeah. Like like Attica, I was in college when Attica happened, which is an, an ivory tower. You're insulated. You're insulated from the real world. So I'd heard of it. I knew what was going on, but I had no idea what it was. And the same thing, I, I did the Black Panthers with Stanley. And the same thing is I'd heard of them. I, I kind of knew to a degree who they were, but insulated. So by scoring the film, I learned all about them. And it's, it's, 
1964 uh, Freedom Summer. Another, you know, interesting things that I'd heard about, but by scoring the film, you learn this stuff. And I, I just enjoy all these topics are different. If, if, if I had to do the same topic over and over and over and over again, you know, I, I, I'd be like, there's a joke about the Valdis that he wrote the same piece 300 times. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. He got four seasons out of it. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't think it's true, but you know, they, that's what people have, you know, anybody who wants to criticize somebody can find something. So. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So Tom, if filmmakers, collaborative members, or even non-members want to uh, find out more about your, about your library, uh, where should they go? Well, to, www.obtmusic.com. Excellent. And and would, we'd also be able to hear uh, some um, samples of your work there, correct? Well, actually, they can go right into the library, search music library. Okay. They can download MP3s. They can go through the whole libraries, download MP3s to try in their project. Um, there's no funny things about it. You know how some libraries put like a little... Uh, Watermark. Yeah, voice yeah. comes in halfway through. <laughs> right. uh, well, yeah. I don't, I don't do that because, I mean, frankly, I've always felt I want to deal with professionals. Right. And in my, I have the highest regard for professionals in our business, with who have the highest degree of integrity and that don't steal intellectual property. That's that's my that's my Pollyanna thinking. Yes. <laughs> so that they can download MP3s all they want. Um, and try them out. And if they feel it's something that's worthwhile for them to license, they can license it. If you're only doing like a film that's 30 minutes long, they don't have to take out that $500 subscription. They can, I think a 30 minute film is like $200 or something like that. You know, they, there are ways that you don't have to pay $500, but if you're doing several films over the course of a year, or if you're doing an hour long film and you're going to use like 20 cuts, you know, it's, it, it makes sense for a lot of people. Sure. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a great option. But I mean, I've, I've learned, you know, the world is not me and everybody thinks differently. How right. They think about music to how, you know, they think about their film and the style of music that belongs in their film. You know, early on in my career, I probably thought the world was me. Yeah. And if I, if I thought something, you know, belonged, I just put it in there. I just put it in the soundtrack because the world is me. As you look at your calendar, where you and I are talking in July of uh, 2021, typically how far out are you booked? Well, because of the Tubman and the uh, Douglas film, those were supposed to be done in the spring. Attica was supposed to be done January 1st. I just delivered Attica last week. Wow. And the reason is because of COVID. So right. I threw all those schedules completely out of whack. So now I've just started the Douglas film, which is an hour long, and the Tubman film is an hour long. I've kind of started that. So I had to turn down a great project for American Experience because it would have bumped right into this and I wouldn't have had enough time. I mean, I probably would have been done with these two films by the fine cut, mm -hmm. but that that's really too late. Yeah. So, yeah. so I had to turn down a film that I, was a great film that I would have loved to have done. So probably this will take me to like the beginning of September, I would guess, end of August. You're a very busy guy with a extremely impressive roster of, of, of work that you have put together over the years. And I'm so appreciative of you making this time to chat with us and uh, for being a filmmakers collaborative member uh, and for, um, you know, making your services known and available to other filmmakers. So thanks Thank very you. much, Tom. I mean, it's a great organization, Filmmakers Collaborative, and, and, and I've enjoyed doing all, you know, whenever you have had events for me to 
come and be like a a displayer. Mm -hmm. We used to have, you know, I always attended those. They're they're great. Yeah, we're looking forward to doing more in-person events now that the world is getting back to normal. Yeah, it's really, uh, it's just nice to meet everybody that's that's involved in Filmmakers Collaborative, all, all the filmmakers, editors. Yeah, it's a, it is a great collaborative. <laughs> I agree. Thanks again, Tom. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks so much, Michael. All right, take care. Take care, right. 